0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all.
1: Welcome to our Term 1 2024 series of the Bible Talks on John. This term, we are adding a weekly podcast to address some of the questions that come out of the Bible Talks each week. If you'd like to submit your own questions, visit campusbiblestudy.org slash tbt. That's campusbiblestudy.org slash tbt. And you can engage with some of the answers in a new Friday podcast. From John 2 um, verses 1 to 22. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. What does this have to do with me? Oh, sorry. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, then the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. His disciples remembered that it was written, Seal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken.
0: Good afternoon, friends. Welcome to Bible Talks. My name's Tim, if you haven't met. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on campus, and it's a great passage. Uh, we've actually got two chapters to look at today, but there's some great riches in this text. Let's pray and ask for God's help to rightly understand and apply His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for a new week on campus. Father, thank You for the opportunities we have to gather in Your name and to hear You speak. And Father, we pray that You would open our hearts and our minds to rightly hear Your voice and so respond well to You. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so you've decided it's time for a new car and keeping with the times you've decided to go electric. You've narrowed it down through your research to these two great options. Both look sunny and blue, that's a good requirement. Uh, both have lovely panoramic glass sunroofs. Both have a, a range of about 400 kilometres. You can do wireless phone charging. They've got radar that will stop you crashing into cars. They both look pretty good. How do you choose? you confident you'd pick the right car, uh, the right investment for your future. It, would it surprise you if, as similar as these cars may look, the companies behind them are actually on quite different trajectories. You might have heard the headlines that BYB, which makes one of these fine cars, it overtook Tesla at the end of last year as being the leading seller of electric vehicles. They are the up-and-coming name in electric cars. On the other hand, about the same time, WM Motors filed for bankruptcy. Uh, they had accumulated a bit over a billion dollars in losses over about three years. Uh, they're not going so well even though they have a pretty good-looking car and people had high hopes in them. Are you confident that you can look at something, that you can assess it, that you can listen to the claims and you can work out what is worthy of your trust and your investment and what you'd do better to steer clear of? Now, investing in cars may be one thing, and you'll be pleased to hear that Jesus didn't turn up as a car salesman. He didn't have his own tech startup, but he did arrive on the public scene in Israel making some pretty big claims. Jesus said, if you wanted to hear from God and receive God's truth, well, then he was your man. Jesus said, if you wanted to meet God and even to be right with God, then you should come to Jesus. Jesus claimed, if you wanted to join God's people, if you wanted to receive eternal life, he was the one you should come to. Now, word was spreading. Jesus was the next big thing. People couldn't stop talking about him, but people weren't sure whether he was the one you could trust. I mean, a big claim is how do you work out if they're sure? Well, John, the guy who's writing this, is written it so that we can be sure. You see, he lived in Israel at the time, the time when Jesus came and walked and spoke and taught and performed great signs. John probably wasn't sure at first, but by the end, he was absolutely convinced. And so, he wrote this so that you and I could be convinced as well. He tells us at the end of his account, that's why he's written in John chapter 20 and verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Now, as you read that, does it give you fresh assurance, fresh confidence to read what John has to say? Or does that confirm all your greatest fears and suspicions? John is clearly a biased writer. He believed Jesus was the Christ and he wants to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ too. And if he's biased, that means we shouldn't trust what he's got to say, right? Well, I think that would be a a slightly foolish conclusion. Perhaps the, the only thing more foolish than saying we shouldn't listen to anyone who has a bias, is assuming that any other text or source or voice we listen to, doesn't have a bias. You see, everything that you consume, everything you read, everything you watch, everything you listen to, it's all been written or conveyed or spoken with a purpose, to persuade you of something. That doesn't mean it's not true, it means we need to understand what it's trying to do and evaluate its claim at the truth. John's up front, he's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes, he wants you to know the truth and he's sharing his credentials for why he can tell you this truth. So, imagine you are wanting to buy one of those nice blue cars from before. If you want to find out which car to buy, you're probably going to go to the manufacturer's website. You might even rock up to a car dealership. Sure, they're just going to tell you things about why that car is going to be great for you to buy. But does that mean it's not true? Or not trustworthy? They know the car better than probably anyone else. And they can help you to make an informed decision. Or what about if someone wanted to get to know you? Or if we could talk to you... Or imagine you had a friend, your best friend, who even moved in to, to stay in the same place with you, studied to the same degree, went to the same parties, joined the same clubs and sporting teams. And after your time at uni, I reckon I could go to your friend and that would be the best suited to tell me all about you. Sure, they'd be biased, they're your friend, they'd say nice things about you. But they'd say what was also true, and that would help me to get to know you. John's just that kind of guy. He was one of Jesus' best friends and he spent a lot of time with Him through Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And he wrote this so that we could get to know Jesus, so we could meet Him, so we could understand who He was and the, the backing betwi- behind these great claims, so that you and I can meet Jesus and have confidence to trust Him. In a sense, we're going to keep on seeing that throughout the whole book. That's what it's all about. But in these opening chapters, we get a taste, the foundation, if you like, for why Jesus is worth our trust. We'll point to recognizing glory. Uh, if you are with us last week, or if you've read the start of John's Gospel, you may remember that John starts with this grand introduction. He doesn't start with the birth of a baby in a manger. He goes right back to the beginning, because the eternal God who spoke creation into being, He didn't start as the baby. He started with creation, or before creation even. But there was that significant point 2,000 years ago when God took on human flesh. He came and dwelt among His people. John was there, he saw it, he witnessed it. And he reflects on that glorious event. Uh, we read in, in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. God's glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as you read this, it got me thinking, glory is a bit of an abstract concept, isn't it? Sounds good, sounds impressive, but what would it look like to see Jesus' glory? How would you rightly recognise glory? I mean, does it look like the, the Kansas City Chiefs being crowned the Super Bowl champions? Does it look like military victory, reclaiming land? Or does it look like your mate turning up with a few extra beers when the eskies run dry? One of these pictures doesn't seem to fit with a picture of glory. And yet, that one that doesn't fit sounds a lot more like what we read in John chapter 2. So, what's going on? Well, if you recall the scene that we just read, Jesus is at a wedding with His mom and His disciples, when the host runs out of wine. Jesus' mum tells Him, she tells the kitchen staff to do whatever Jesus says. Jesus objects, He says it's not His time, it's not His responsibility. But still, He acts. Have a look from verse 6. Everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It seems Jesus' mum was right to trust Him. We don't know what she'd seen at home with Jesus growing up. We don't know what she expected Jesus to do here. But if the problem was the embarrassment from a lack of wine, roughly 600 litres of the finest grange should solve the problem. But does it still seem just a little bit strange? Surely, God didn't humble Himself to take on human flesh just to provide a bit of extra drink for our parties. Does this seem more like a rebellious son getting carried away with his mates rather than the Divine Son rightly honouring, even glorifying His Father? I mean, 600 litres. That's a lot of wine. If the problem was the embarrassment of running out, maybe just one jar would have done, 100 litres. That's heaps to go around, isn't it? And you'd have a look at John's conclusion in verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And He manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. When Jesus turned this water into wine, it was a sign that showed His divine glory. It wasn't a rebellious streak, it was a glorious act. It wasn't self-centered or, you know, serving the mates. It was about honouring God and nurtured the belief of His disciples. It was a great act. So my question for you is, how does this sign show Jesus' glory? Uh, here's a chance to say hi to those around you. Questions on the screen. How do you think this turning water into wine did really reveal Jesus' glory? 30 seconds, enjoy the chat. As we come to think about Jesus turning water into wine, as we think about alcohol and a pretty large quantity of it, it's worth being particularly clear what we are and aren't talking about. God created wine and alcohol as a good gift to be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with alcohol, but God's very clear that drunkenness is to be avoided. When we lose control of ourselves, we fail to honour God, we fail to honour ourselves and we can do great harm to others. It's one of the great disgraces of our culture, the way that drunkenness is celebrated and we tolerate the great harm that's continually perpetrated and suffered by those under the influence of alcohol. Friends, we shouldn't allow this to continue. Don't buy the lie that drunkenness is harmless fun. Everyday people are being hurt, lives are being ruined by those under the influence of alcohol drunkenness is not necessary, it's not normal, it's not a rite of passage, it's not what uni life or the transition to adulthood is all about. Friends, if you choose to drink, that's fine. That's a good gift from God. But drink responsibly. Stay aware, in control, to love God, to love others, to keep yourself and to keep others safe. And let us not encourage or celebrate drunkenness, nor allow this alcohol fueled violence and harm to continue that is so rife in our society. Uh, whatever you take out of this sign that Jesus has done, in no way see it as an endorsement of drunkenness or the debauchery that can follow so easily. So, what is this sign all about and how does it show Jesus' glory? For a start, it shows that Jesus can do things that humans cannot do. You and I are incapable of turning a huge quantity of water into a huge quantity of very fine wine. There's glory to that power. But I think there's more to it. The context seems to be significant. They're at a wedding, and a superabundance of wine at a wedding, I think, is hinting to an even more glorious wedding celebration that's to come. You see, one of the pictures the Bible uses to describe what Christians look forward to as the celebration of their eternal relationship with God is that of a wedding banquet, a banquet that celebrates the union of Jesus Christ and his people. And so Revelation 19 talks about the the great joy, the blessing, the honor of being part of that banquet. the angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You probably enjoy being invited to a wedding. It's pretty fun to celebrate with friends and good food and drink. This is the wedding banquet you don't want to miss out on. This is the wedding banquet that goes for all eternity. This is the rich joy of being one of God's people. So, if the context is important, I wonder if the water jars were also significant. These, we're told, were jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Uh, This doesn't seem to be something that God required of His people. It seems to refer to a tradition that the people had made up to try and uh, appear more righteous or holy or pure. Uh, You can read about this kind of thing in Mark chapter 7. But Jesus seems to repurpose these jars to show that they aren't the right way to pursue purification. Instead, if you want purification, it's all about that beautiful marriage, the beautiful way that Jesus loves His spouse, the church. Uh, We can read about this in Ephesians 5. This is what purification is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's that beautiful marriage. And as Christ gave Himself up for the church, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, we don't need to make up rites and rituals to try and make ourselves look clean to others or to God. We need to receive the beautiful cleansing of Jesus, the Husband of the church. This is God's glory. This is God's purification plan. Now, granted, I don't think the disciples at the time understood all of this about the true significance and glory that Jesus was giving them a taste of at this wedding uh, up in Cana in Galilee. But over time, I think they understood more and more the significance and what Jesus was showing them about His true identity and the glory of what He had to offer His people. He used a taste as Jesus began His earthly ministry. But we then moved from this celebration up north down to, well, the heart of the most significant Jewish religious festival. We come to the temple in Jerusalem at Passover time. Now, the temple, it was a pretty significant and impressive building. It was the heart of Jewish religious life. Not only was this the place where God symbolically dwelt in the midst of His people, this is also where He came to express your relationship or even maintain your relationship with God through offering sacrifices that express your thanksgiving and could also deal with your ongoing sin and failure to live God's way. Now, if you had to come to the temple from far and wide to come and offer your sacrifices, I'm not sure if you've tried travelling with a large animal recently. It's probably a little inconvenient, a little awkward. And so they set up a system that rather than bringing your cow or your sheep or your dove or whatever it was to the temple, you could just bring your bag of money, turn up at the temple and buy the animal required for sacrifice. It was a great system. There was also the requirement for God's people to contribute to the upkeep of the temple. And so there was this kind of temple tax. But as God's people spread out further and wider, they had different currencies. And so they came to the temple and they had money changes. Just like at the airport, you can come to the temple, change your money, pay the tax. You see, the temple was a place where you met with God and did business with God. And the Jews had come up with these systems that helped facilitate that. As you turned up, there'd be animals, there'd be sacrifices, there'd be religious-looking people doing religious-looking things. It was probably a hive of activity and a place that was probably pretty encouraging and affirming to go to. I'm not sure the last time you went to a temple or thought about animal sacrifice, but I'm wondering whether you'd find this kind of practice to be quite encouraging. Would going up the temple give you confidence in your relationship with God? A slightly different question, but why don't you say hi to the person around you? How might the temple and sacrifices add confidence to your relationship with God? I'd love to hear your answers. Have a chat, and I'd love to hear what you've got to say. <laughs> Any thoughts? How do you think going to a temple, maybe even offering your own sacrifice, how might that give you confidence in your relationship with God? Any thoughts? It's pretty tangible, uh, you can see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, uh, and you've put in this great effort uh, you expect some kind of uh, reward or, or recompense, yeah yeah. And it looked pretty impressive, didn't it? It would feel kind of uh, inspiring to come to this grand building, this expression of God's dwelling amongst His people. You do this great act before Him. Uh, I think there'd be lots about the kind of temple worship that would give God's people confidence. You've come and done something, expressed something, been in His very presence, done this great act, and then you head home again. One potential risk, which Clement may have been alluding to of this kind of a picture of worship, is it might focus too much of your attention on the place and the action and what you've done yourself. God's desire was never that religion or relationship with Him was just something that you could tick the box on. I've been there, I've done my pilgrimage, I've made my sacrifice, and now I get on with my life. In fact, Jesus talked about what God did require of His people and it's much bigger than just a once a year kind of trek. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbour as yourself. God's desire was always for a relationship, and that relationship was expressed through the worship at the temple, but it was never restricted to what took place there. But the temple was a hive, it was a centre of religious activity. And as Jesus arrived, he was no doubt met with a, a scene that looked very pious, very religious. But rather than being impressed... Or congratulating them on their great service of the Lord, Jesus rolls up his sleeves for spring cleaning. Verse 15. Making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now that would have looked pretty surprising. Here was the place where people were offering sacrifices to God, here were people serving the people. To relate well with their God and Jesus drives them all out. What's going on? Jesus says in verse 16, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He sees in these people that they are serving themselves rather than honouring God and He wants it done. He clears them out and this clearly creates some controversy the religious leaders, the, the priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, those who are looking after the temple worship, well, they're approved of, perhaps even suggested that this is how worship could take place. And now this guy has come from out of town and driven it all out, upturned it, said that it doesn't belong in God's temple. Well, how are they going to respond to him? You may expect that they, as the authorities, would drag him out and rebuke him, because what right does he have to clear out the temple? But they seem to recognise something in Jesus that perhaps gives them pause. Rather than dragging him out and rebuking him, they at least ask the question, hinting that they think perhaps he could have the authority to do this bold act. So they say in verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Three days, they think to themselves, don't be ridiculous, that would be absolutely impossible. They said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you'd raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. Now you've got to sympathize with the Jews here, don't you? They're standing in the temple. People don't refer to their bodies as temples. Surely, this is the place that Jesus is talking about destroying and rebuilding. But Jesus tells them some, or reveals to them, a profound new truth. This glorious stone temple is being transcended by the glory of His body. There was a hint of this back in chapter 1 and verse 14, when we're told that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelling among, it's literally the word for kind of pitching your tent amongst some other people. If you recall back to the wilderness after God rescued His people from Egypt, He came and told them to build a tabernacle, a tent for God to come and dwell amongst His people. That tabernacle was the pattern then for the stone temple. And then that was all just a pattern for the Lord Jesus. Jesus says that if you want to meet God, if you want to be right with God, you don't need to go to a building, you need to come to Me. I am the fulfillment of that glorious temple image. And if you want to please God, it's not up to you and the work of your hands. I was going to take care of that too. On the cross, Jesus would go on to have the temple of His body destroyed as the once for all perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. Then on the third day after His death, Jesus would rise to life again. This would be the triumphant sign that He had the authority to clear out the temple and even point forward to its great fulfilment in in Himself. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus said, I am the one place where sinners can meet God and be declared right with God. Jesus gives that beautiful fulfilment that what God desired was relationship, not ritual. Again, understandably, Jesus' disciples didn't understand it all at the time. John's really upfront about that. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, when God poured His Spirit onto His disciples, they understood. The pieces fell into place. They believed what God had promised in the Scriptures. They believed the words that Jesus had spoken. Do you see how it's important to rightly identify the temple? I mean, if there's a certain building you need to do, or a certain practice, a sacrifice, an altar, then we should go there. We should have altars in our churches. We should make sacrifices week by week. But if that's all been fulfilled in Jesus, if He is the temple and the one true sacrifice, then there's no place for altars or temples in our worship of God. They've been done away with. They've been fulfilled in Jesus. And as we thought about before, there might be something kind of reassuring or or confidence-inspiring to go to a physical building and offer your own sacrifice to feel that you've done something or, or tick that box. You see how much more confidence inspiring it is to know that there's not this burden on you to make an annual sacrifice. There's not an ongoing requirement and you might wonder if you've ever done enough, you know that Jesus has done enough. It's finished, complete, sufficient, 2,000 years ago on the cross. And so we have complete confidence to walk into God's presence to relate with Him, to rejoice with Him. Friends, if you want to meet God, if you want to enjoy peace with Him, then you need to meet Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the temple. To try and find God anywhere else, to try and please God in any other way, is a futile waste of time. Come to Jesus. That's reinforced by the necessity of coming to Jesus to meet with God as we come to the conversation with Nicodemus. He's one of the elite religious leaders of the day. And we have a pretty interesting conversation in the start of chapter 3. We're at point four, seeing God's kingdom. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation where it feels like you just miss one key detail and things all of a sudden get very strange and confusing. I was reminded of this just the other day. My kids came home from school and were sharing about their Greek lessons. At the start of their Greek lessons, they sing a song where they greet one another. And in Greek, the, kind of, the word for greeting, for saying good morning or hello, it's calamara. And as they sang this song, one of my kids was a little confused because they thought they were saying Calamari. So they came home and said that they'd sung the calamari song to greet one another in their class. A slight confusion. I'm not quite sure how they processed that and fit the bits together, but it doesn't matter. Maybe the Greek liked calamari too. But this is the kind of scene that we come across in, in chapter 3. And Nicodemus, he's a respected leader of the Jews. He might have been at the temple when Jesus turned up. No doubt he's heard about what happened there. He's seen the signs. He recognizes something in Jesus' greatness, but he's not exactly sure what it all means. He comes to Jesus at night, and as he leaves in the darkness, he seems just as confused, if not more. Have a look chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, and we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Poor man is awfully confused. And as we read this, there's a few other bits that we might miss in some of the confusion. As the translators have moved from the Greek that John wrote into English, there's some little word plays or nuances have been lost. And so you've got some footnotes to help you pick up what's going on. In verse 3, Jesus talks about being born again. You might have a footnote that says you could also translate that being born from above. Or down in verse 8, when it talks about the wind blowing, you might have a footnote that says the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word in Greek. So how does this help us to make sense of what Jesus says? Basically, Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you're going to be one of God's people, if you're going to be part of God's kingdom, then you need God to create new life in you. Nicodemus considers this absurd in a physical and a human sense. Once the baby's come out, it's not going back in. That's a once-in-a-lifetime journey. There's no second births. But Jesus explains this isn't something humans can do or should even try and do. It's a birth that comes from above. It's a birth brought about by the Spirit of God and the Spirit's a bit like the wind. You can't control the wind or, or see the wind but you can see or feel or experience what the wind does. In the same way, you can't bring about this new birth by God by your own means or power, but when God by the power of His Spirit brings forth new life, then you see and experience that great new reality. And this had some pretty shocking implications for this great Jewish rabbi. They also have some stark implications for those of us who may be youth group leaders, Bible study leaders, preachers, mentors. If God hasn't been at work in your life, No matter how impressive your knowledge of the Bible or your teaching of the Scriptures or your reputation may be, if God hasn't been at work in your life to bring about this new birth by His Spirit, then you're not part of God's Kingdom. You don't have life with Him. And these were sobering words for Nicodemus and maybe also for us. But if that's the case, what do we do? We just sit back on the couch and wait for God's Spirit to blow in our direction? Not at all. Jesus goes on to talk about something God did in the past to describe a parallel and complementary truth that God's people need to hold on to. You see, Jesus goes back to Numbers 21, where we could read about God's people grumbling and complaining to Him. In judgment, God sends serpents amongst His people. They cause many to die. When the people realize their sin, they turn to God, they cry out to Him, And God provided a way for them to be saved. We read in Numbers 21 and verse 8: The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You see, God provided a way for his people to be saved. There was nothing particularly powerful about a serpent on a stick, it was just something that Moses made. The power was in God's word of promise. And for everyone who trusted in that word of promise, they received God's gracious salvation. Jesus says something similar was about to take place with him. There's a few significant differences, but have a read from verse 14 of chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see God's great word of promise? Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die, and God extended an incredible promise of salvation to the world. We all deserve to perish for our rebellion against God. But Jesus offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe, who trust His promise, who look to Jesus and know that He died for their sin. That's the key difference. The serpent did nothing. Jesus did everything. His death was in our place. His death brought us forgiveness. It achieved that profound redemption through that perfect sacrifice. So now all who look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, with trust, they receive the forgiveness and life and entry into God's kingdom. Do you see these two truths that Jesus presents to Nicodemus? He says at one level, you need God to work on you, to give you new birth and life and welcome you into His kingdom. And He also says you need to look to the Son and believe in Him to receive that eternal life. And the two fit together that as we respond to the invitation to come and look to the Son to receive forgiveness and life, we know that that was God's gracious gift to us as He's worked in us by the Spirit. In a sense, the way we see that the Spirit's been at work is as we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his death in our place. So, don't just sit back, look to Jesus, believe and live. Doesn't that offer seem too good to refuse? Forgiveness and life, enjoying the love of God rather than perishing as we deserve? So, why is it that so many people do refuse? Here's one last chance to have a chat with those around you. If you were to love something more than Jesus, what would it be and why? 30 seconds, Uh, And don't worry, we'll finish at 5-2, so just have a brief chat and then we'll bring it home. Uh, Maybe a question you want to ponder or discuss some more later. But as we see in verse 19, when the eternal God took on flesh and arrived in the world, it was like a light shining in a dark place. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, Jesus came offering all that was good, light, love, life, forgiveness, joy but in our selfish evil, we prefer to do things our own way, to pursue our own pleasures rather than to receive the gift of life and love and light and hope. So, we'd rather reject Jesus and keep going our own way in the darkness. It reminds me of a sad conversation I once had with a gentleman who came along to church to find out more about Jesus. Uh, We got to chat about God's incredible offer of forgiveness, of life, of hope, of joy, of relationship that's offered to all who come to him. This man also shared about his same-sex attraction and the current relationship that he had, that he enjoyed and really valued. As the conversation went on, he frankly said that he'd rather pursue sex on his terms than than receive life on God's terms. He'd prefer the darkness than life and light and forgiveness with God. And he walked away. Or I'm also reminded of a wealthy young man who ran up to Jesus. You can read about him in Mark chapter 10. He came up and asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? And in love, Jesus said to him, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And that man loved what he had more than Jesus. And he walked away sad. Friends, is there something that you hold more dearly than a love for God? Is there some sin in your life that you're not willing to bring into light? You just want to hold on to it. Maybe you're here, checking out who Jesus is, but there's some parts of your life that are off limits. Is there a pull of a relationship that you're unwilling to give up? Friends, don't forsake God's love for fleeting romance. Or or is it the love of money, the desire for comfort, the elusive promise of security that pulls your heart away from your Lord? For many of us, I think, Think this is the greater threat. We have so much work and we work for so much more. In our culture, we considered money rich and time poor. So, you'd expect our churches, if they struggle to find enough volunteers, should have plenty of money to pay for staff. But most of our churches struggle for money and for volunteers. Friends, what's going on with our hearts? Who are we living for? Who are we working for? Do we need to give up a bit of work, to have a bit more time to serve the Lord? Or do we need to give up a bit more money or maybe both? Friends, let's bring all of our lives into the light. God's demonstrated His great love for us in Jesus. He must be the first love in our lives. He alone is worthy and He demands that position in all of our lives. As we come to the last section of chapter 3, the last heading in your talks, you'll be, you know, pleased to hear it's a brief one. Uh, We're at point 5, who do you listen to? And we've got a great little example in John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, he was the big viral influencer of his day. He was a household name, he was the one that the religious leaders came to, the crowds were flocking around. But when Jesus arrived, even though John was at the peak of his ministry, he started to scale things back. Because he was there to point people to Jesus. As He does, He gives us a great model for Christian ministry ever since. Christian ministry is about, not about pointing to ourselves, it's about pointing to Jesus. It's not about trying to gather people around ourselves, it's about gathering people around Jesus. It's not about us being considered great, but Jesus rightly being honoured as the one true great one. It seems simple and obvious, but it's pretty easy to get wrong. And so, John gives us a great example to follow. There's a few interesting conversations that take place. In verse 25, this discussion comes up about purification. I'm not sure if they've heard about what happened at the wedding in Cana or what took place in the temple. But Jesus is clearly pointing people to the Christ. He is the one who offers purification. And so in verse 26, John's disciples, they're concerned that the crowds are leaving him and going to Jesus. But John says that's the whole plan. He's the Christ. He's the saving King, not me. Of course, the crowds should follow Him. John describes himself like the best man at a wedding. He doesn't want everyone to celebrate Him. His joy is complete as people celebrate and go to Jesus. As he says from verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before Him, before Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend or the best man of the bridegroom stands and hears Him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's the true humility that comes from rightly recognizing Jesus and from rightly knowing your place. As Jesus come, he speaks the truth of God as the one who's come from God. He's the one who you should listen to. And in what we've seen in chapters two and three, John's given us all the reasons we need to know why we can trust him. He came and gave us a taste of his greatness as the the husband of the church, the one who offers true purification and invites us to join in his eternal wedding banquet. He's the one who does away with the old way of offering sacrifices to God. You don't need to go to a stone building, you need to come to a person and receive his death in your place. You need God to bring about wonderful new birth in your life by the power of your spirit. You need to look to Jesus, the one who's raised up on the cross, who offers forgiveness and life and God's love to all. He is the one you need to listen to. He is the great one. And these things have been recorded so that we could make the right choice, so we could know who we could trust. There's been hints throughout the chapter, but it's presented probably most starkly in the very last verse. The choice we have to make as to who we believe in, as to who we commit our life to. John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, there's a choice of who we're going to trust our lives to. Come and believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these signs and these stories and this testimony that gives us confidence for understanding who Jesus is and why he's worthy of our trust. Father, please help us to all turn from the darkness and come into the light that we may receive your love and your life and the joy of eternity with you. Father, Give us confidence through your word. Give us new birth by your spirit. Help us to listen to you all of our days. For Jesus' sake, amen.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.